0: This morning's passage is the chapter of Jude, the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, Contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as the feast with you without fear, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his, holy, of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Netflix was a
1: fledgling, very young company and wondered if its future would at all be secure. As a matter of fact, the uh, big uh, man on campus was Blockbuster. Blockbuster was the box store. It was the place where you went to get movies. And uh, Netflix, um, in their desire to make their company viable, approached Blockbuster and talked with them again in 2007. They came back to Blockbuster and said, Maybe merger, maybe purchase us. Uh, perhaps there could be some collusion between us. We could become a, a company. And um, Blockbuster uh, said, no, we, we're, we're not interested. And in 2007, the founders of Netflix honestly thought uh, their, their company was done. They thought it was over and uh, Netflix would not survive. And then in 2000, uh, so in 2007, along the same time, Blockbuster got a, a new CEO, and uh, Blockbuster's new CEO uh, came into the company and made a critical error. He forgot who they were. He, he got more caught up with the delivery of, uh, of uh, the product than the product itself, and more with the, mes- uh, the method than with the message, and... He immediately uh, shut down their internet sales department, focused all of his attention on the store, uh, and the uh, folks traveling to the store. Within 18 months, Blockbuster's value had uh, uh, gone down 85%, and within two years, Blockbuster no longer existed as a business, and no need to describe the rise of Netflix. What was the problem? It was an identity issue, an identity crisis that Blockbuster navigated poorly. Uh, Jude addresses an identity problem in this letter of just 20-some verses. He writes to uh, churches, we're not sure which ones, and what he writes to these churches uh, has to do with identity issues. He reminds them at the outset of the letter of who they are. Why does he do it, and, and why does he go to Great Lance to let them know who they are? It is because of the situation they find themselves in. You see, there are folks who have come from within the church that have created issues. They have, in Jude's words, crept in. Who are these people? Verse 8 describes them as people who have Visions. Uh, if you look at the way Jude goes on to describe them in the middle of the letter, these are extreme charismatics. They rely not on uh, the Word of God, but on their experience and experiences. Uh, They create a superiority complex because of their visions and their dreams that others are not able to have. And so they cause others to desire that level of spirituality by which they can experience God in a deeper, more profound way. I would say that Jude's writing, while it was to a specific or uh, specific churches in his day, can definitely be read and uh, listened to church today across America and indeed in the world. As from within the ranks of the church has come the prosperity movement. The prosperity movement simply says, if you follow God, then all things will work out for you. God will bless you with health, he'll bless you with money, he will bless you with great connections in life, wonderful things, and the prosperity movement, while it is uh, really birth in the United States, is coming alive in Africa, and coming alive in Central and South America in remarkable ways. Why? Impoverished people looking for a way out find their way out in a gospel that seems to purport that if you come to Christ, you will be lifted indeed out of your poverty. And so the people who share this message are people who, who pretend to have heard from God in ways that regular people cannot. I would say that the enemy within is often, maybe always, more dangerous than the enemy without. And so the enemy within the church must be called out. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the church collective around the world. You swing the pendulum the other way and you find the other extreme. And the other extreme is the, uh, the thought that more knowledge will somehow make me more holy. I, I have a, an edge, I know more. And since I know more, uh, then I must be closer to God. Both of these lead to a common problem and and a big word alert in Jude's day, and it is a problem today, antinomianism. What in the world is that, anti-against, gnomian law? It's, it's, It's a thought or a thinking, and Jude says it leads to sensuality, that says, since I am up here superior, you are down here inferior, I end up thinking and feeling like I'm over God's law itself. There are no rules that really apply to me. I make my own rules. I am above God's law. And so it is liberal theology on the one side that has invaded the church, and it is this existential theology on the other side that has invaded the church from within that has created this idea that, that matter, I can do what I want, morals do not apply to me. Jude addresses the very real problem here. And so I must say to you, if you're a Montreal student or another college student, you're about a week in If you're a high school student or a middle school student, same with you. And if you don't know who you are, you will veer off course more quickly than you ever thought and end up in a place you never imagined. Uh, The title of the sermon is borrowed from a Tim Tebow book. I have a copy here. We have a few out front. If you'd like a copy, simply says, know who you are. Live like it matters. Know who you are. Live like it matters. It's a, it's a great devotional as uh, kids are getting back to school. Although it was written particularly, uh, says on the cover, to homeschool, homeschooled students. Jude knew who he was. Uh, he identified himself as a servant of God. Some translations render. There are two possible Greek words for that. This really is the word which means slave. He calls himself a slave of God, and immediately when we hear that, our thoughts because of our history as a country are uh, obviously negative, but, but can I pause for a moment and let you know that the same designation was used to describe Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, the prophets in the New Testament, Paul, Peter, and James all called themselves slaves of God, slaves of God. So why is it then that the term is used? It expresses both humility and authority. And I think we would immediately understand, yes, it expresses humility. We get that. But authority? How is it that being a slave of God, a slave of anyone, could express any kind of authority? So let me, uh, let me try to illustrate that for you. All right, so I do not play golf. Uh, I, I just couldn't imagine doing that. Um, I've tried a few times, and it doesn't help my faith at all. It's, it's really test it, um, and I fail the test. But I enjoy watching it occasionally, and I always watch the Masters. I mean, I just always do. The course is beautiful. The, the scenery is amazing. It's just mesmerizing to me. And my wife, who's just fantastic, overheard me say a few years ago, if I had a bucket list, I've never made one, uh, going to the Masters would be on it. And sure enough, just through a couple of connections, she 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 got us tickets, and so we head down on a Friday to the Masters, and we get there, and I honestly have never seen an event done with, with more class and quality. It was just absolutely amazing. Everything was done right. The master's is on everything. I mean, you eat, you know, a, a pack of crackers and it doesn't say Nabisco. It says the master's on it. You can't carry water in because it doesn't say the master's. The master's is everywhere on everything. And the egg salad and the pimento cheese tastes great. All right. So it's just this incredible experience. But there's a part of it. And I know I reveal that uh, my, by being a man right now. All right. That fascinated me, still does to this day, is that they directed traffic in the men's bathrooms. No lie. There are men, and that's their job. They stand in the men's bathroom, and they have the front nine and the back nine, depending on what you need to do. And they ask you as you walk in the door. I'm not lying to you. And they direct you to wherever it is you need to go. And I remember standing there being just mesmerized, like, who would want this job? (laughs) Like, what do you do all day? Well, I direct people to the front nine or the back nine. No lie, it was just mesmerized. And I went like five times. I'm kidding. Uh, but, But it was fascinating. Why do they do it? Here's my understanding. That when you work the masters, you later get to play the course. And so, why wouldn't you direct traffic in the bathroom if you get to play the course? Now, while it is indeed a base illustration, it is the reality of being called the the slave of God. It is not the slave designation that is indeed uh, what credit is given to it. it, it is the master that causes me to revel in the name slave. I'm fine with being his slave. I'm fine with being his servant because he's God. And that's what gives me authority. It's an authoritative term then because I work for the king of kings and the Lord of lords as do all of you who have been called by Christ. David agreed, Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. This is what enables you to take a stand against the world. If you indeed are a slave of God, then you do what he says, when he says, how he says. It gives you boldness against a world that rages against him. Now, notice then how James or how Jude describes Jude this half-brother of Jesus, right? How he describes us. His audience, and by extension, us, called. The word literally in the New Testament means invited to a feast. To be called is to be invited to a feast. It's the literal meaning of the word. And and so I want to touch on something here. I just want to say theologically, we're going to dive down into the deep end, all right? So kind of sit up straight, you know, ears perked, uh, don't, don't let me drown you. Um, we're just going to dive into the deep end. This word called, I think is, uh, people shun the word for fear of what it means that a God calls effectively people to salvation. What does that mean? Let me share some verses Uh, jeremiah 1 4 and 5 then the word of the lord came to me saying before i formed you in the womb i knew you before you were born i sanctified you i ordained you a prophet to the nations sounds like jeremiah didn't have much to do with that john 6 44 and 45 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How about John 15, 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. What do we learn from these verses and from Jude's designation of you as being called, that if you belong to Christ, it isn't because God looked at you and saw some spark of goodness and thought, I think you'll be a good addition to the family. No. No, that, that, that isn't the case it isn't because God God saw your lineage and discovered that your father was a pastor your your grandpa helped uh, you know put the steeple on the old building at church and therefore because of this lineage God said mm, I think they would be a great addition no uh, all we discover from these verses is there there's a God who calls he calls and we do not determine how he does that and when he does it we, we don't make that designation. If you belong to Christ, it's because he sent you an invitation. You don't show up at, at the feast without an invitation. He, he sent it to you. You say, what is the significance of that? That ought to go a long ways in, when you have an identity crisis. You, you've been invited to the feast of God. But then, if you're a thinking person, what about the responsibility of, of man? Glad you asked. Let's look at John 1 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there's a God who invites, there are people who receive. How about John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is a God who invites, but there are people who believe. Or how about John five twenty four Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. There is a God who invites. There are people who believe. They hear and they believe we said, say, Jerry, how in the world can you bring these two ideas together? I must say to you that there's no thinking person who can take and resolve these. Eastern thought allowed for tension that Western thought really doesn't. The Bible was written in that context. But I love Tim Keller's thought on this. Keller, just retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, said this. He said, I believe uh, on our way into heaven, we'll look over the door. And over the door, it will say, whosoever will may come. And then he said, I believe when we walk through the door, we'll look back over that same door. And on the other side, it will say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit. Bottom line is this church, if you belong to Christ, one day he called your name. He chose you. He invited you. And you responded. Therefore, you and I are who we are, not for anything you and I have ever done. The next two words Jude uses are participles, and they describe called. So they don't stand up with called, but really under. They, they modify called, and uh, the words are loved and kept. You're loved and kept. So please hear me. In, in a, a world of universalism, which says that all people some way are going to get to heaven, God has our particular love for those who are his. And some of you immediately recoil and say, that doesn't seem fair. Yes, it does. Why? I love quite a few people, but I love no one like I love my wife and my kids. And if you fault me for that, you don't understand family, right? I love my wife. I love my kids more than anybody in this room. I love them. And not one thinking person would say you shouldn't do that. Or I'm privileged to mentor a bunch of young pastors and Privileged to preach in different places, even in the world. It's just a neat, neat opportunity. I've met some wonderful people in God's church around the world, but I don't love them as much as I love you. Why? God's given you to me to be your pastor, to be your flock. When you hurt, I hurt. When you rejoice, I rejoice. I love you. Is there anything wrong with that? No, you're glad. So it is with God When he calls someone and they respond, his love for them is deep. You say, Jerry, what does that love look like? I alluded to this a few weeks ago. I want to elaborate more. I don't think I could ever, if I preached this vein, the rest of my life say enough about it. But I think in order to to, to more, not fully, more comprehend the love of God, go to pre-creation, and you you see God the Father, the Son, and the, the Spirit just so content. As a matter of fact, the book I'm reading called The Deep Things of God calls it the happy land of the Trinity. Life is good there. There's no sin, there's no sorrow, there's no disappointment. It's all perfection, right? But God, who is love, decided to engage us in the happy land of the Trinity. He wanted us to experience that love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and so he decided to do the unthinkable and send the Son out of there. And there is a scene. You might call it Jesus' initiation into ministry and what's happening. He is going to be baptized. He's walking among sinners into the water. And as he is walking among sinners, the father, whose deep love for his son is profound, can't help himself. And what does he do? He leans over the balcony of heaven and says, that's my boy. Behold my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit just can't help himself either. And the Spirit just descends in the form of a dove and says, Hey, that's my Jesus right there. That's the happy land of the Trinity. That's it. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together in a remarkable way. The happy land of the Trinity. And that's the love. That God has invited you and me into. Oh, if we can know that and know it more deeply and know it more profoundly, how wonderful that would be. So we're loved. And number two, called people are loved and called people are kept. This word kept is a neat word, a neat word. Jude was so brilliant. His 14 words in this tiny letter that don't appear anywhere else in the Bible. Um, this word kept is a neat word. It's a picture of safeguarding a treasure until it can be given to its rightful owner. So, so a treasure that is kept until it can be given to its rightful owner. How does that work? All right, so 23 plus years ago, Hannah, uh, our daughter, was born. And on the day she was born, I held her in my arms and I prayed over her that day and prayed that God would indeed bless her and use her in, in a wonderful way in the world. It's a long story, but those of you who know me know that I wasn't her father then. I was simply on call from the church to go be at the hospital. She was born to a single mom, and Wendy and I would later get married. And I adopted Hannah. And so in that period of time, what my job has been is to take this treasure that God gave me named Hannah and to prepare her for a very special day. What is that special day? It's a day uh, where I will stand behind some doors and Hannah will be on my arm and she will be in a beautiful white dress and I will be in a tux that I've uh, just picked out just for that day. And I'll put her on my arm and uh, I will walk her down an aisle. And for however long it is 40 years, I'm just kidding. Uh, I have prepared her this treasure for this man. And this man who who has won her heart, who has uh, shown her love, and who has a job. Um, I will come down the aisle and I will give her away to him. She's my treasure. And for however many years I, I have guarded her for him. According to the way Jude describes it, God is doing the guarding. We are the treasure. And he will one day present us to Christ. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. God's preparing the bride for the groom. If you have been called, you are loved and you're kept, you're guarded. We need not forget that, amen? Isn't it easy to forget? So know who you are. Number two, quickly, live like it matters. Verses 20 and 21 of Jude We'll get the middle part in the next two weeks. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. All right, so there's an interesting dichotomy here. Uh, In verse 2, we're told to guard or to keep ourselves. And in verse uh, uh, 21, or God keeps us. And in verse uh, 21, we keep ourselves. What is he talking about? Uh, God keeps us and we keep ourselves. Well, that's how it works. You see, it is my job as dad to keep Hannah, right? To guard her, to treasure her. But I can't be everywhere Hannah is. I won't be. That's not good parenting. I will gradually release her. She'll have freedom to be the woman that God has called her to be. And I I won't make every decision for her, will I? Well, well, then it is your job. And, And it's interesting uh, all of Judas written to a plural audience. This is not an individu- individualistic, Americanized way of discipleship. This means church, keep yourselves. Meaning we need each other in this room. I need you and you need me. We've got to have each other. Well, how do you do it? It's very clear, building yourselves up uh, it's, it's a picture of, of a foundation built on faith, and then we build up a house uh, on that foundation. But how do we do it? Praying in the Spirit, waiting for Jesus. We pray and wait. That's what we do. We pray and we wait. You say, oh, well, I was looking for something profound. Don't. Don't. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. Why? Well, I've shared with you that God has so changed my prayer life in this year, reading a little book called Praying the Bible by Don Whitney from Southern Seminary. Fantastic little book. And I began to pray the Psalms. I had never prayed the Psalms in any uh, particular way until this year. And as I began to pray the Psalms, here's what I discovered. It'll be on the screen for you. That when I pray in the Spirit, I receive power. Uh, If you'll put that up on the screen. Uh, I receive power. I realize God can do what I cannot do. I realize God can do what I cannot do. You say, how does that look? On Wednesday night, we'll have uh, just a great time of prayer where we're going to pray for the sick, and we're going to pray for those who have relational needs. We're going to pray for others. But I look out, and I see Beth Cripps sitting here this morning. Beth and Bo um, moved here from Houston and uh, live up in Black Mountain. And uh, Beth was diagnosed with cancer recently. And so Beth has had a history of heart issues. And sure enough, began her chemotherapy only uh, for that chemotherapy to cause her to have a heart attack. And the doctors to say to her, you will not be able to continue your Chemotherapy. And so, if Beth, if God doesn't step in, doesn't look good, we need his power, don't we, Beth? Yeah. If you haven't come up against a problem you can't solve, you will. You will. And so the way we build one another up is to pray in the spirit. We we pray powerful prayers in the spirit, not visions, not dreams, not uh, not some ecstatic um, uh, strangeness that we conjure up. We pray in the spirit, powerful prayers for healing. Powerful prayers for reconciliation. We pray powerful prayers for God to move and God to work because there are things we simply cannot handle. We can't fix them. And secondly, it's presence. And you'll see that on the screen. I realize God can go where I cannot go. I realize God can go where I cannot go. Psalm 119 being a key place, God is in the depths and the heights and in the, uh, the far reaches of the universe. If you ever begin to, to parent kids who begin to move away, you'll begin to pray prayers to a God who is omnipresent. And you'll realize that in your absence, he's very present that you will pray where uh, you cannot go. You will pray for God to send where you cannot be. You will so lift up prayers for your kids in ways because you know you can't be there with them and you can't do for them. And so there is a God who can be here and who can be there. You pray in the spirit and you realize his omnipresence to be as present uh, on the college campus as he is. In your living room. That's that's how you live like it matters. And then you wait. How? Expectantly. With desire to see God work. You see, I can't describe why. And maybe it's a bit risky for me to say here. But for some reason, I just so feel God will... Heal, Beth. I I just do. I really do. And Wednesday night when we gather to pray, that's what we're asking for. That's what we're asking for. We're asking big things of a big God who can do big things, amen? Amen. Know who you are. You're called and therefore loved and therefore kept. Live like it matters. Pray. Wait. Pray. And wait. One more word, and then I want to pray for us. There are a lot of singles in this room. And if there's ever a time in your life when you're tempted to sacrifice your identity, it is trying to find the man or woman who will be your spouse. Could I, could I say something to you this morning? Know who you are. You're called. Loved. And kept. Live like it matters. Pray. Pray and wait. Pray and wait. I want to close by praying for us. Would you bow your heads?